Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you and to worship God with you. My name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here. Chris has uh, got the next few weeks off, and, uh, and we're closing in on the end of this series that we've been studying on the life of David. I think he's got one more sermon when he comes back that's going to cap it off, but I've got the second to last sermon today, and it's a toughie. This is a very tough passage, and uh, I've wrestled with it this week as I feel like I've been wrestling with God and trying to understand who He is and His ways, and uh, I think the, the Lord's got a, a beautiful message for us this morning. Uh, pray with me if you will. Let's ask God to help us. Father, you are mysterious and incomprehensible, and you're good. We just sang about the goodness of God, and I have I've known that in my own life, that you've been pursuing me when I've not been pursuing you, and that you love us, and that Jesus came and died for us so that we could be forever with you. I pray as we read your word this morning as we stand under its authority and we and we seek to know who you are and and how you act in the world pray god that you would speak to our hearts pray that you would draw us close to your heart lord that you would lead us in the everlasting way and lord that you would give us fresh faith to trust in the god of the universe i pray all these things in jesus name amen so we're, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 24, which is the last chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. Really, 1st and 2 Samuel are kind of one big book. They just split it up probably because the scroll wasn't big enough. This is part one and part two, but it's all one big story. And this is the very last chapter, and it's a very perplexing story for the writer of 2 Samuel, whoever that was, for, for that person to end on. Like, why would they end on this story? It's a strange story about David's census, but I think there is a reason we're going to come back to that at the end for why this is probably the last story in this book about King David, because it seems like a downer, okay, uh, but there's, there's gospel here. So let's read this together. We're going to read the whole chapter, and, it, and as I said, it, it's a strange story. Uh, so let's just begin with verse 1, and here's what it says. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of them. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king are still, still see it. But but why does my king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and began from Aror, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, toward Gad, and on to Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And they went out to the Najib of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. They've been numbering for a while here. 
And, in, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I will offer you. Three options, David, because of your sin. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall three days of pestilence be in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. But let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord Lost my place. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aronah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aronah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aronah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aronah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aaronah gives to the king. And Aaronah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aaronah, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. You get in these stories in the Old Testament and you go, why is this here? Like, What is God trying to teach us about this? This is such a strange story and I, I felt like that this week I mean it's not unfamiliar I've read this story before but but then you take a look at it on and in closer detail and you're like I don't 
I don't exactly understand what God, God's doing here. I have, I have a lot of questions about who this God is and about why this story is in the Bible and about how this applies to my life and about what I'm supposed to make of this. And, and even a little bit, dare God I say it, can I trust this God? I mean, what, what's going on here? And so I want to try to help us this morning. I think there's great gospel truth here. And I want to ask four questions. That's really the sermon today. Four questions. The census. What was it? Number two, the sin. Why was this wrong? Number three, God's sovereignty. Who's really to blame here? And number four, the gospel. How is this good news? So we're going to try to go through those quickly. The census. What was it? Well, a census is what you think it is. It's a counting or a numbering of the people. And so um, that's what they did. But, but I want you to notice a few little things, indications here from the text, okay? Just things I want to point out and then come back to you later. The first is that when David commands Joab to number the people of Israel, Joab clearly knows this is wrong. So does David. Like David later realizes, oh, this is wrong. So verse 4, Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of my Lord the King still see. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? He's like, why do you want to do this, David? You shouldn't do this. It even says in 1 Chronicles, which also tells this story, and it adds a few bits of detail we don't get in the Second Samuel version. But in 1 Chronicles, it says in 21.6b, it says, for the Lord's command was abhorrent to Joab. Joab heard what King David wanted him to do, and he said, I, I don't want to do, this is awful. Don't do this. It's strange. Secondly, like, like this census, a census in and of itself is, is not a bad thing. I mean, there's other places in the Scripture where God actually tells, you know, Moses, I think, to number the people in Exodus 30. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel. So this had been, this had been done before. And there's, there's actually a tax they're supposed to collect when they do a, a census. And that tax stands for a ransom for the people. And that may have something to do with why God was upset. But I don't think that's the whole story. But a census in and of itself, not a bad thing. Third thing in the text that you should just notice is that David is delighting in this census. While, while Joab is saying, my Lord the King, why are you doing this? And it was abhorrent to him. Again, in verse 4, it says, but, or verse 3, excuse me, but Joab said to the king, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the King are still see it. But why does my Lord the King delight? David, why do you delight in this census? Why do you why do you take pleasure in this census? And then the fourth thing that is especially, I think, pertinent is that I want you to see that this census relates specifically to the military. I'm sure they numbered all the people. And they may have numbered some other things. But it says specifically in verse 9 at the end of the census, took them nearly 10 months. It says, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel, and there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men who drew the sword. J.D. Greer and Heath Thomas say this. They said, specifically, 
he was concerned with counting the number of men who were already in the army or old enough to be drafted in the near future. There may have been other statistics the census workers gathered, but the only relevant detail that we are given about the census results concerns the military. Israel and Judah have 1.3 million soldiers, quite an army. So that's the census. That's what it was. But maybe more perplexing question is, why was this wrong? Why was this sinful? And I want to give you several reasons. And the main one that I want to give you up front is the only one that I can say with that absolute certainty. And then I want to infer with the Holy Spirit's help and Tim Keller's help and, and J.D. Greer's help, I want to point out maybe some other reasons. But, but the first reason that we know for sure is that it was wrong because God said it was wrong. After David numbers the people, he, it says his heart struck him. He knew what he had done was sinful. And Joab clearly knew that numbering the people, in this instance, numbering the army was sinful and it was abhorrent to him. And we're not given more detail than that. But listen to Tim Keller here. The Bible doesn't actually tell us why it was wrong to count the fighting men. We have to infer it. And he says, and that's fine, we'll do that. He says, but I think it's significant here that the Bible tells us that it was wrong, not why it was wrong. And it's very instructive for us because, listen to what Tim says, a big part of following God is obeying Him often when we know that we're not allowed to do this or that, but we don't know why. He says, do this and don't do this. And sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't. And we have to obey Him whether we know it or understand it or not. Are, are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? The Bible's really clear on an issue. You're like, that's wrong. This is right. I don't really understand why God said that. Are you willing to follow Him even if you don't completely understand? Are you willing to trust Him? You know, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't really explain why they shouldn't eat the fruit. He told them the consequences if they did. You'll surely die. But He didn't go into the, the nuts and bolts of like, here's, here's why, guys. Here's why I don't want you to eat it. If you do, sin's going to evade the world and it's going to wreck everything. And, and actually, here through history, I'm going to give you 1,000 points about why if you eat this fruit, it's going to screw everything up and you're going to be separated from me and it's going to cause all this damage. He didn't, he didn't tell them that. He just said, that, that's really the test, isn't it? Will you trust me that I'm a good God and that I always do rightly? And if I've said, do this, or do that you need to trust that that is the truth. Do you have that sort of faith? Do I have that sort of faith? Or do I have to understand before I'm willing to obey God. Because the essence of faith is obeying Him even when we don't understand. There will come many times in our life where you're like, I don't understand. I don't want to believe what God says about this. Will you in that moment say, but you know better than me. 
and you've been so, so good to me. And I've known the goodness of God. And so in this place where I don't completely understand, I'm going to trust you again because you've always proved faithful to me in the past. J.D. Greer says, our, our culture finds this kind of obedience unbearable. We assess God's rules and decide that we will follow his laws if and only if we understand and agree with them. He says, this is arrogance of the highest order. If there is a God, we must come to the point where we accept that he makes the rules even if we fail to understand them at first. He knows better than we do, so humility demands that if we are unsure, we submit to the one whose knowledge far exceeds our own. And Tim Keller goes on and says this. He says, if you say, if you say, I won't obey God until I understand why. He says, now wait a minute. What you actually may be saying is this. I won't obey a God who's wiser than me. There isn't a God wiser than me. I know just as much as he knows. I won't obey him until I understand. You can't make me understand. I'm not going to obey. He says, what? That makes no sense. If there's an infinite, transcendent God, it makes perfect sense that many of the things He commands would not make perfect sense to us. If He's infinitely transcendent and wise and has existed for all time and has seen everything and created all things, then it makes perfect sense that He knows a lot and understands a lot that we do not understand and know and understand. Why would we be so bold to say, I won't trust Him unless I understand Him? Because that's not faith, guys. Faith is, I don't completely understand. But God has revealed enough of Himself and His goodness and my need of Him to me that I trust Him. I place faith in Him. So that's the first reason this was wrong. Is simply, we don't know, but God said it was wrong. And so we're going to trust him. But I think there are a couple other things that we can infer about why this was wrong. And I want to go to those now. The second reason that this was probably, that was wrong, and it's the reason we think it was wrong, is that it was prideful and faithless. The text says David delighted in counting the people. He seemed giddy with the prospect of seeing how big his army was. And if you remember the whole story of First and Second Samuel, the people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were often prone to, the minute God kind of helped them out, say, all right, we got it. We got it now, God. Remember, God said, I don't want you to have a king. I'm your king. And they said, no, we, we, want, a, we want a king. We want to be like all the nations. We got this. So 1 Samuel 8, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the other nations. And then our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so pridefully, they're like, we got this, God. We're going to take this in. So look how big our army is. We, we got this. We're going to do some damage. We're going to be all that. David reflects, I don't know if it's before or after this event, but he reflects in Psalm 20 what they're what their response should be when he says this. He says, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, 
but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That should have been his posture. I don't need to worry about the exact size of the army like Joab said. I need to worry about the God who has always been faithful and is going to take care of us in this moment. His pride and his arrogance begin to well up in him. David Toshio Tosamura says, by numbering the people for military purposes, David was apparently showing lack of trust in the Lord to supply the necessary men when needed. Or it may be that the issue of David's dependence on human rather than divine force began to trust himself, began to get arrogant. And then the third reason I think that we can infer is that it was wrong for David to number the army. It was wrong for Israel to do this because, listen to this, Israel was called to be a light to the nations, not an oppressor to the nations. God had always said, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. You're the joy of the whole world. You're my salt and light people so that everyone can look at you and know how they ought to live, Israel. That's what you're called to be, a light to the nations, not an oppressor to the nations. J.D. Greer again, David's census hints at a plan of military aggression. One of the main reasons you figure out how many fighting men you have is because you plan to pick a fight. David should have been delighting in God, trusting in God, and keeping his eyes on God. Instead, he was leaning on his military and looking out towards the potential conquest of other nations. Compare this David to a David walking a little closer with God early in his life in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, it says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, And he said, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Should we do that, David? Should we attack them? Then David acquired again of the Lord. And the Lord answered him, arise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So he rescued these people who were being attacked by their enemies, the Philistines. In, in that story, in that instance, David's like, should we go do this, God? And God's like, yes, you should. As David go, his men go, are you sure, David? Because that seems kind of crazy and kind of hard. And so David goes, let me double check again. God, are you sure that we should go do this? God says, yes, you should do that. That, that's how he had been operating. But now, in this instance, he's like, let's just see how big my army is and what sort of damage we can do. Extended quote from Tim Keller. And here's what he says. He says, here's what they were doing. You add up how many men you have. You add up how many men this other country has. You do a little intelligence. And any neighbor who is weaker than you, you invaded them. You enslaved them. You enriched yourself with them. And that's just the way it was done. You did it simply because you could. And therefore, apparently, Israel was moving in the direction of doing what all the other nations did. And that is, they were simply building up a military force to be used in order to colonize weaker countries, to get tribute from them in order to enrich themselves. But God in the Old Testament never says that Israel is supposed to be the terror of the whole earth. Psalm 48 says Jerusalem is supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. Rome was a terror to the whole earth. 
Babylon was a terror to the whole earth. Nineveh was a terror to the whole earth. Jerusalem is supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. Why? Because God said when He put Israel together, and you can see this especially in in Deuteronomy chapter 4, for example, and in other places in the Old Testament, God says, I want you to be the joy of the whole earth. I want you to be a light to the nations, not a terror to the nations. I want the other nations to look and see how you treat one another, how your society works. Other societies are built on power and they're built on wealth. Your society must be different, Israel. Your society must be built on service to one another. Service to God and service to neighbor, not on power. It must be a society of justice and a society of love. And if you're different, if you're a holy nation, a light to the world, showing the world what human society is supposed to be like, the love, the justice, then you'll be a testimony of Israel to my glory, the glory of the God of Israel. And you'll be showing the world what they should be like. But David and Israel seem to have power and prestige and wealth on their minds. Not so much God on their minds. That's why I think it was wrong. But God's sovereignty, who's really to blame here? And this is maybe the hardest part about this passage because it begins in the very first verse of chapter 24 and it says this again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel we're not told exactly why and because the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel it says and he incited that is God incited David against them saying go and number the people now the New American Standard translates this slightly differently and maybe that's helpful, maybe it's not. It basically says the same thing. But it says, now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and, and it, that is the Lord's anger, incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. So incited means to allure or entice or instigate. Somehow God sovereignly moved David to number the people of Israel, because he was angry at Israel. That's hard. It's everywhere in the Bible. Second Chronicles adds a little more light, and maybe it helps us. And in the second chron- or excuse me, the first Chronicles version of this story, it's, it adds this detail, and this is helpful. It says, "Then Satan stood against Israel." and incited David to number Israel. So in the second Samuel version, God was angry and he incites David to number Israel. In the first Chronicles version of the story, Satan stands against Israel and he incites David to number Israel. Now both those things are true, right? Because we're Bible-believing people. We believe that all of this is the inspired and infallible Word of God. And so this is doing theology. When two things seem to contradict one another, we figure out how they don't contradict one another as best we can with the Holy Spirit's help Because God does not lie. And all His Word fits together and makes sense. So what does this mean? God sovereignly allowed, because He was angry with Israel, for Satan to tempt David to do the census. And David did. That's how we put it together. 
does that mean that God is at fault? No. Because both texts tell us clearly. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And, Dave, <clears throat> and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And in 1 Chronicles 21.8, the same thing. David said to God, I have sinned greatly, and then I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. Further, in the New Testament, James closes in on this. He says, let no one say when he's tempted. David was tempted. Let no one say when he was tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. <clears throat> Complex things. God's sovereignty. Man's responsibility. We're not shying away from either one. They're both in the Bible. Everywhere. God sovereignly knows everything that will come about and plans it down to when a hair falls out of your head. Nothing happens in this universe. Not one molecule moves in this universe that God is not completely and totally in control of. Everything happens according to His sovereign will. We choose to obey God or not and are completely responsible for our actions. If we sin, it is our fault. And the Bible displays these mysteries together. And they seem to contradict, but that is because he is all wise and we are not all wise and we're doing the best we can to try to make sense of it. Here's what J.D. Greer says. The Bible teaches that God sometimes allows us to fall prey to the temptations of Satan or our own evil desires. So in one sense, <clears throat> listen to this, in one sense, God is not the one doing this. Satan is tempting us. Our flesh is inciting us. We are choosing to sin. But in another sense, God remains sovereign over the process because He could have interrupted it if He had so desired. He allows us to pursue evil not because He delights in it, but, because, uh, but in a way that even these evil decisions become part of His greater plan. Okay? And again, we see this throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple more examples. Acts 2. Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost. Verse 22. Here's what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. Why did Jesus die? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned that He would be delivered up, but then He looks at the people and He says, you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. Your fault. God planned it, but He's not the author of sin. You carried out your heart's desire. Or Joseph. In Genesis 50, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, don't fear. I'm not in the place of God. As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
God's sovereignty is working to make everything happen according to his will. And yet we are still responsible to follow the moral will of God. And so David was at fault for numbering the people. Okay? Here's what Melissa Kruger says, and then we'll get on to the gospel part of this passage, which is glorious. Just because I do not understand how something can be so, does not mean it is not so. It simply means my understanding is insufficient. Surely God can be and act in ways outside of our ability to comprehend, as Paul rightly questions, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor. Reading these passages together reminds me to be patient with mystery. I can hold these truths in balance, experiencing great comfort in them both. My own responsibility for my actions causes me to rejoice all the more in the grace of God, the perfect righteousness that I am unable to attain. He freely gives. Okay. But here's the thing. What, what is God up to with this, with this judgment? David sins by numbering the people, and this time, unlike in the story of Bathsheba, David repents quickly. He numbers and he immediately, no one even comes to him. He immediately knows, I screwed up. I should not have done this. The Holy Spirit convicts his heart and he goes, I have sinned against the Holy God. And he's, as the text says, he's cut to the heart and he confesses his sin to God. And, and yet there are still consequences. And so Gad the seer comes to him and says, David, there are three options for what's going to happen because of your sin, because of the people's sin. Here they are. Either three years of famine, okay, or... Three months of foes attacking you or three days of plague and pestilence. And David says, I'll take the last one because that's more dependent on God and I'd rather fall into his hands than the hands of other people. But, but here's what's interesting about the punishment that, that God doles out on Israel for, for David's sin and really for, for their sin. J.D. Greer says, David's been dreaming of numbers for nearly 10 months, but not this one. What began... A, as a show of strength ends in weakness, blood, and tears. And Tim Keller says, now it's interesting about these three options for punishment that no matter which one happens, this is the end of Israel's dreams of becoming an imperial power. Because three, months of, uh, three years of famine means that their economy is decimated. And you remember what happened when, when the economy was decimated before Israel had to go to, to Egypt because Joseph was there collecting food, but, but all, all the other nations were basically colonized by Egypt because that was the only place they could get food. So if Israel gets three years of famine, their economy is shrunk. Their wealth evaporates. If they get attacked by their enemies for three months, then they basically become subservient to their enemies. And again, their imperial power is gone. Or in the third case, the one that David chose, their army gets decimated, 70,000 men. It's especially important to notice that that's what it, the text says. It doesn't, I'm sure some, some women and children and other people died, but the text wants to point us specifically to the fact that it was 70,000 men. This army that they was building, 70,000 men of the army died. So Tim Keller again. So no matter what David chooses, what God is doing is He's taking away 
the cultural idols that were developing in Israel. And he says, see, even though David is the most guilty because he's the king and he bears the most responsibility, he says, you can't, you can't move towards a standing army. You can't decide suddenly to become an imperialistic nation on your own. It, it, the whole society is involved in that. You can't, move a sort, toward, you can't move toward a society that puts all its em- emphasis on economic wealth and power unless the society is moving in that direction. And God is taking those things away. Those were the things Israel was trusting in rather than God. Those are idols. They're cultural idols. And God is smashing their cultural idols. And he's going to make it impossible for Israel to go down this path. That's why the judgment is falling on everybody. And it's a severe mercy. He's keeping them from becoming the evil things that they were headed to be. He's saying, you are not designed to be a terror to the nations. You're designed to be my blessing to the whole world. And so because you've decided that you maybe want to head towards being a terror, I'm just going to pull that back from you. I love you too much to let you stand and continue in that way, Israel. David was wrong. God had a plan. God's doing things we don't see. Somehow it's all working together. That's what the Bible's telling us. Here's the amazing thing at the end. I know I'm talking longer than I should. Okay. The plague breaks out. 70,000 men die. Probably others. They deserve that. God never doles out wrath and punishment willy-nilly. Every single person that died, he intended to die and they deserved to die. They were a sinful person. And then near the end of this three days of plague, the angel of the Lord who's causing this plague and this destruction, this pestilence, is at the threshing floor of Aranah. And he's about to strike Israel. Or not, excuse me, not Israel, but Jerusalem specifically. God says, stop, it's enough. Why is that important? Do you know what, what the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite is? First Chronicles tells us right after this, you know, David builds the altar. God accepts the, the offering. So something else was punished so that the people wouldn't continue to be punished more. Something took their place. It became a substitute for their sin. No one else had to die. And that becomes the very spot where Solomon then builds the temple. So that through the years, thousands and thousands and thousands more animals would give their lives to turn away the wrath of God so that blood was shed, but our blood didn't have to be shed. Its blood was shed so that our sin could be taken away. And, and where was the temple located? The temple was located on Mount Moriah where hundreds of years earlier, Abraham had climbed a mountain to sacrifice his son. And God at the last minute had said, I've I've provided an alternate sacrifice. 
There's a ram. The ram is a sacrifice. It's the substitute. Your son doesn't have to die. Isaiah 30, 18 says, The Lord longs to be gracious to us. He exalts Himself to show mercy to us. The Lord is a God of justice, but blessed are all those who wait for Him. Why is the writer of 2 Samuel ending on this story that seems like such a downer? Because this is where the temple was going to be. And David had the right idea. David said, he was struck to the heart. He said, God, don't, don't kill them. It, kill me. Let me be the substitute shepherd. And it's kind of like God said, David, you have the right idea, but you're the wrong shepherd. There is going to be a shepherd that's struck down for the people. There is a sacrifice that needs to be made to take away the wrath, my wrath towards your sinfulness and your rebellion. But you're the wrong shepherd. But Jesus said later on, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This is the gospel good news. That God is a God of mercy and justice. And though He will always punish sins, He longs. He waits on high to show us mercy. Three questions, then I'm done. We as a church of Jesus have been called to be a light to the nations. The church picks up. The church of Jesus Christ picks up where Israel failed. And we're called to be a light to the nations. Salt and light people. We are not seeking power. And we are not seeking wealth. And we are not seeking prestige. We are seeking justice and truth. We're seeking to tell the world about Jesus. And any time we mix that up and we begin to seek power and prestige, things go wrong. Let's not do it. Number two, we need to let God be God. And we, these, we're talking about mysterious things, and sometimes we don't understand. But the essence of faith is, I will trust Him, though I don't understand, because He is good. And God, I believe, help my unbelief, help me. But I'm going to trust You. I don't have to have it all figured out to trust You. And thirdly, we're all sinners deeply in need of God's mercy. And our only hope is that someone has taken our place and borne the wrath that we deserve and that person is Jesus. Are you trusting in Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I know that was a lot. And I pray that you would help us to pick up and to understand what you would have us to understand. God, I do pray that we as a church would not be seeking power and prestige, but would be trusting in you to light our way and would want the world to know who you are. Lord, I do pray that we see our own sinfulness and that we would throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Lord, would you allow the gospel 
the good news about what Jesus has done to touch our hearts in a new, fresh way today. Lord, draw us to yourself. Help us. In Jesus' name.